Thanks so much to those who have been leading us in worship of God tonight. So tonight, we're straight back in to the book of Judges. And what a chapter to begin with as we have our second go at this book. It's becoming a bit familiar now, isn't it? We think about this chapter tonight and look at some of the big themes, some of the big events in the chapter that we have taken time to read through tonight. There's family rivalry, there's cold-blooded mass murder, deception. Right in the middle of the chapter, there's, there's a weird parable about trees. There's talk of an evil spirit. There is a terrible massacre and then a gory death to round things off. Maybe you're thinking tonight, it's good to have you back, Philip, by the way. Yes, it's back to, to what we've become used to over the last while. It is a difficult chapter for lots of reasons. And maybe tonight as you were listening your way through the events of Judges 9, you were thinking to yourself, as I will readily admit, I was thinking at various points over this past week, as I was sitting preparing this sermon, why couldn't I come back and at least start off with a nice story from the Gospels or a, a chapter or a passage in one of the letters about holy living or something like that that we could readily get a handle on? And that's why very intentionally tonight, very intentionally, deliberately, as we read and then finished the readings that we had from this chapter tonight, I was proclaiming this is the Word of God because it is. This is God's Word to us. So, what is God possibly saying to us tonight from His Word as we read a chapter of Scripture like this? Well, as we answer that question, let's keep in mind that what we read here in this chapter this evening is part of a much bigger and far greater story. That story of, of two different things, two parts, or if you like, two sides. On the one hand, the people's failure, and we see that so much in this book and in this bigger story running through the Old Testament, but also a great story of God's faithfulness, His enduring love, his constant faithfulness shown to the people that he's entered into covenant with. And this particular part of the story is a time of rulers who were known as the judges. As we have discovered before, it was a time when Israel had lost the run of itself. It had lost the plot. The people were making it up as they went along. And let's remember how that was the case tonight as we come into this particular chapter. Remember that these are the generations that came soon after Moses and then Joshua, and how quickly they forgot how God had delivered His people out of slavery and had brought them into the land that He had promised them. So that at various points in this book, a summary is given of what society was like at this time. It's a summary that we see in places like chapter 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 25, where we're told in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, 
or if you're reading from the ESV tonight or from the, the old King James Version, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we have said before how that is so instructive, how that provides us with a, a summary of what our own society is like. The people are making it up as they go along. So this is so relevant to us, but it's also a great encouragement to us because running through this story, we see that there is that faithful remnant of people who continue to live by God's law. And they provide us with a brilliant example as we struggle to know how we should be living in our society today. How do we navigate our way through life in a society that seems to be so godless? And another repeated phrase in the book, which we first encounter back in chapter 2, verse 11, the, Israelite, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a great reminder that while we might choose to make it up as we go along, there is objective truth. There is right and there is wrong, and God determines these things. And He sees what this world and what our lives are like. And chapter 9 is a microcosm of the whole book. Because in this chapter, and you will have noticed this, we get to see in horrible detail what it is like when people forget God and leave Him out of the equation. And we're not going to, to try and cover every part of the chapter this evening in the time that remains. That would be impossible. But I, I really wanted us to read and to hear the whole of the chapter so that we're absolutely sure of what things are like when God is not remembered, as was the case here. But in actual fact for us tonight, the summary back at the end of chapter 8 is the important place for us to start. So please look back at where we left off last time and the time when Gideon died. And we're told in chapter 8, verse 33, and please look at this with me, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They once again gave themselves over to false gods. They set up Baal-bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. And I want you to see there the important connection that there is between how people treat God and how they treat others. Do you see that there? Because surely the tragic line in this summary comes there in verse 34, that they did not remember the Lord their God, how quickly they forgot, and how quickly we can forget God in our lives so that we can end up living, as Paul Tripp puts it, as, as functional atheists. And what he means is, while very few people connected with churches would want to say, I'm an atheist or I don't believe in God, sometimes our lives betray that our lives show that effectively we don't really have a proper belief in God at all. 
because his word and his presence makes no difference? And at this time, how did that work out in practice? Well, here's the thing. Because the people forgot God's rescue, they then disregarded the one that God had given to bring about that rescue, Gideon. So that it goes on to tell us in verse 35 that they failed to show kindness to his family. And there's a general thing to observe here, and that is that a godless society is an unkind society. We see that in history. We saw that in the last century, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union under Stalin, that when God is left out of the equation, a society becomes unkind. But specifically, we see this in how people reject Christ, that when people forget God, then they want to have nothing to do with His ultimate Savior, Jesus. And the disaster and the chaos of godlessness is seen all too clearly here in the events of chapter 9 involving Abimelech and the people of Shechem. So, who are they? Well, first of all, who was Abimelech? Abimelech was one of the children fathered by, by Gideon. His mother was one of Gideon's, or was Gideon's concubine, not a full wife, but really a slave of Gideon. And when Gideon died, Abimelech saw his opportunity to seize power, and he set himself up as king over the people. And what you need to know about Abimelech, this is the big headline, Abimelech was bad news, okay? There is nothing good about what he does in this chapter here. But in actual fact, the problems and the chaos of this chapter have their origins back in the previous chapter in the behavior of Gideon himself, that while we regard Gideon as being a hero of the faith, we get to see what his life was like back in chapter 8. So, look back at that chapter again, please. And if we begin in verse 22 of chapter 8, the people came to Gideon and they asked him to be their king. They did that in violation of what the Lord had declared. He did not want his people to have a king in this way. So, listen to the answer that Gideon gives them in chapter 8, verse 23. He tells them firmly, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And as we hear Gideon's response, we might be inclined to get up and clap him and say, well done, Gideon, because it's the right response. It sounds very admirable, except that as he said this, he was living like a king, so that he took that tribute from the people. When they came back from all of the loot after beating Midian, he took a bit of their gold and he turned it into an idol, which was then used to worship. And in verse 30 of chapter 8, we read about how he had all of these wives and he had this concubine, so that his home was like a royal palace. He set himself up like a king with a king's lifestyle. So that there was this massive gap between what Gideon says 
and what he did. And it was that gap that leads to all of these future problems within his own family and in the nation. And then who were the people of Shechem? Well, this is where Abimelech's mother had come from. So they regarded Abimelech as one of theirs. He regarded these people as his brothers. And he thought he could use them to gain power for himself. And in the time that remains, I want us to very briefly consider what we see unfolding in the rest of this chapter. And I want us to do that under two headings. First of all, what appears to be happening here in chapter 9, and then to think about what is actually happening, what the reality is. So, first of all, what appears to be happening here in Judges chapter 9? Well, what appears to be happening is Abimelech takes full control and he's using people to do that, and he's eliminating anybody who gets in his way, not least his brothers, the the other sons of Gideon, so that we read here that he gets money from his mother's family and the other people in Shechem, and he uses it to hire mercenaries. And then he goes with these mercenaries, and they kill all of Gideon's children, except Jotham, who manages to escape. So, here's the result of Abimelech's actions in verse 6. We're told, then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. And there's something really troubling here. It's something that we, we see not only in this passage, but we see it repeated all the way through history. And indeed, it's still happening today. And it can be really troubling to us. People completely disregarding God's laws, doing things their way, doing whatever it takes to be in charge and to get ahead. And they do get ahead. In our own society, paramilitaries, past and present, At a global level, Putin and Ukraine. This week, China and Taiwan. But maybe you see this at the micro level as well. Maybe you see this in your workplace. You have a colleague who is bullying or a colleague who is always trying to get ahead and will land you in it and just treats you like absolute rubbish to just get ahead. And they seem to do so well. Or maybe you see that in your own family, much closer to home, a spouse or a child or a brother or a sister. And they treat you and your family in that way. It's all about them and getting ahead, and they seem to succeed. And you think to yourself, hang on, that's not right, that's not fair. Why is God letting that happen? Where is the justice? Does God not care? And as you struggle with those questions, you might think those are new questions. Those questions are ancient questions. They're biblical questions. Just read the Psalms so that when we turn to a Psalm like Psalm 10, just to hear a flavor of it, why, O Lord, 
Do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. Why does the wicked man revile God? And as we grapple with those questions, we need to remember again that what we're reading here is part of that much bigger, far greater story. Yes, a story of the people's failure, but also a great story of God's faithfulness. And you might think, where is God's faithfulness here in this chapter that we have been reading tonight? You know where it is. God's faithfulness is in His judgment. And as you hear that, you might think, well, hang on, my head can't get round this at all. You're saying God's faithfulness is related to His judgment. Is it not that on the one hand, God is faithful, but on the other hand, He is a God who is, is angry with sin and, and judging people? Well, let's continue. Because what is actually happening here? It's an unfolding story of God's involvement and His judgment. And you know, the second half of this chapter is just as bloody and horrible as the first half, if not more so. So that we read that the people of Shechem and Abimelech, they soon fall out, and the consequences of their fallout are absolutely grim. The one remaining survivor from Gideon's family, Jotham, he curses the men of Shechem and Abimelech in verse 20. And listen to what he says to them. Jotham has strong words. He says, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, the citizens, and consume Abimelech. And are you able to specifically see what he is saying? He's saying that they would be one another's downfall, that they would punish each other, and so it turned out. That first of all, Abimelech ruthlessly destroyed Shechem and its people. We see that in verse 45, that all that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against Shechem until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. And there's more, and it gets worse. Next, the poor people who take refuge in the tower in verses 48 and 49 are burnt alive there. About a thousand people killed. But then towards the end of the chapter, we read that Abimelech went one step too far, literally, when he came to attack the neighboring city of Thebes. He came to a dramatic end. Listen again to verses 52 to 54. Look at those verses that Abimelech went to the tower in that city and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone. That would have been a big, big weight. That's the whole point. On his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. 
and nothing like a, a classic bit of misogyny just as you're, you're about to keel over and die. That when he was there with a, a, a skull cracked open, he still thought to himself, I don't want anybody to think that a woman killed me, so you better finish me off. That was the time, and that was the attitude. But he was killed by a woman. And it's as if the people of Shechem and Abimelech cancelled each other out. But of course, we get to see what was really going on. We get to see what the Lord did and why He did it. So, go back to verses 23 and 24. You see God's hand on this story, that the Lord God, verse 23, sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. And why? God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, that is the 70 sons of Gideon, the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. Now, do you see that? Because that is the key part of this chapter, that the Lord stepped in to bring about His judgment but that the Lord stepped in ultimately to deliver His people, the children of Israel, because neither Abimelech or the people of Shechem were good news for His people. And so, as we finish off, and really as we finish off in these final moments, two things to really briefly reflect on about the God that we worship and hear from tonight. The first is, his sovereignty, his, his control over things, and how God in His sovereignty can take even that which is evil and use it to bring about His purposes. Now, He is never the author or the instigator of evil, but such is His sovereignty over all things that He can take it for His purposes, for His glory, and for the good of His people. So that literally here, in this chapter in verse 23, an evil spirit is used to bring about His purposes. Consider that. To spread disharmony and chaos amongst these people to bring about His purposes. And of course, tonight, as we read this story through that gospel lens, through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with all of that knowledge, all of that hindsight, we see the ultimate example of this, don't we, of how God in His sovereignty takes something that is evil and uses it to bring about ultimate good. Where does that happen? It happens at the cross. So that later Peter talks about that on the day of Pentecost. You guys thought that you were in control. Your leaders who wanted rid of Jesus thought that they were calling the shots, but God used this for ultimate salvation. Hallelujah. And the other big thing that comes out of this passage, the Lord's judgment, His justice. And I want to say something strange tonight, but I believe that it is biblical 
and that is that God's judgment is a source of hope. And you might think, how could judgment be a source of hope? But consider this world. Consider the history of our world. Consider all of the wrongs, all of the terrible things, the Holocaust and all of these terrible movements and moments in history, and that they, they matter to God. That that kind of wrong really matters to God. So, there is hope and judgment. But of course, there is as well fear and judgment, or at least there should be. But for us tonight, as we consider the gospel, the hope comes in the fact that this judgment of God was placed upon His Son, Jesus, at the cross. That it was Jesus who bore upon Himself the punishment that we deserve. And that Jesus is the perfect King. We're reading about some very imperfect kings and rulers. Abimelech is right at the top of the pile. But we think at the end tonight about our perfect king, the king who came to serve and not be served, and who is a great, great savior. And we think of him tonight, and we thank God for him. We're going 